beginning in verse 1, it says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on him. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, Lord, for this insight into the life of the early church. And Lord, as we come to your word today, we come with a great reverence for your word. We come with a great expectation, Lord God, that you desire to speak to your people. We thank you today that you're not done with your church yet. Lord God, you've called us for such a time as this to to speak up and to stand up for your word. You've called us in such a time as this to be bold with the gospel. And so we pray this morning that as we look together at the pages of Scripture, that you would do something in this moment that would change us, Lord God. You would do something that would mark us. We don't want to leave here the same way. And so we just thank you today for the power of your word to change us. We submit ourselves to your word. We say, Holy Spirit, speak. I pray in this moment against any distraction of the enemy that would keep us from hearing what you desire to speak. Holy Spirit, speak to your church and change us, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. You may be seated. It is, man, so good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Wow, the presence of God in worship today, just his presence is here. Um, We're turning back to the book of Acts this week, okay? We're going to continue on in our journey uh, through this historical book that was written by Luke. Now, Uh, the writer of the book of Acts, Luke, we talked a few weeks ago about what a phenomenal historian he was, remember? And and so as we look at the writings of Acts, I love it because uh, we see not only the highlights of the church, but we see the struggles of the church as well. If you remember in Matthew 16, Jesus made a promise to his disciples, and his promise was this, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's amazing because in Acts, we see right away the attacks against the early church, but we also see this, that those attacks do not prevail. We're seeing how this promise was fulfilled. The church as we know it began with 120 who were gathered together in prayer in that upper room, and they were awaiting the promised Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit came, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They, they spoke in other languages, right? And we know this, that those that were gathered there in Jerusalem uh, for the Feast of Pentecost heard the wonders of God being proclaimed in their own language, right? And so that, that got their attention. Peter, of course, stands up and he preaches boldly the message of the gospel. And, and those who receive that word that Peter preached right away, they receive it and they're baptized. 
and about 3,000 souls are added to the church right away. So think about the multiplication there, 120 right away to 3,120. Right away we see addition to the church. And these believers, these early believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And as they did this, many signs and wonders were done in their midst. Now, the first three chapters of the book of Acts, every, everything is going great. I mean, the church is thriving, the Great Commission is being carried out, the gospel is being brought, first of all, to Jerusalem. The apostles are teaching in the temple, they're declaring the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and there seems to be like no resistance to this great Jesus movement until a man who was lame from birth is healed in the name of Jesus. This man gets to his feet and he, he declares uh, the goodness of God in his life. And all of a sudden, at that point, Satan begins to attack the church. The first attack comes as a warning to Peter and John from the Sanhedrin to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. But the result of that attack is the, the believers, they, they leave that place and they pray, pray for greater boldness, Right? And as they pray, listen to me, they're, they're praying in accordance with God's will. They already know what God's called them to do, and they're saying, God, would you make us bold to do what you've asked us to do? And the Holy Spirit fills that place. It's literally shaken, and they're given a new boldness to do what, what God has called them to do. And so get this, when the attack from the outside doesn't work, the enemy says, you know what, I think I'm going to work inside, <laughs> He tries another tactic. He tries to corrupt the church by bringing about hypocrisy. And so when Ananias and Sapphira try to deceive people in the church, God gives Peter, he gives them great wisdom and discernment, and he calls it out. And hypocrisy in the church is dealt with very seriously. So seriously that two people end up dead. Okay, That's how seriously it was dealt with. The church is purified. And then again, we see the multiplication come. Verse 14 of chapter 5 tells us more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, a multitude of both men and women. The enemy's attack within the church did not prevail, and it's at that point that the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they're, they're stirred up again. They're, they're filled with jealousy because they realize this, that their influence is waning, right? The apostles continue to teach and preach in the temple even though they've been asked to be quiet, because the apostles recognize this, they must obey God rather than man. And so the leaders are thinking, man, if we can't shut them up, let's lock them up, right? If they won't be quiet, let's put them in prison. But we know that doesn't work, right? There's a, a miraculous prison break that, that takes place, and the apostles are freed from prison. They're set free, but they don't run and hide when they're set free. Remember, if you're here today and you've been set free by the power of God at work in your life, you have not been set free to run and hide. You have been set free to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. The angel tells the apostles, go. Go, go back to the temple. Go back and stand in the temple again and speak the words of life, and that's exactly what they do. And so once again, here they are. Think, think about this. The Sanhedrin gathers together. They say, send to the prison to find these men. They're not in the prison. Oh, wait, there they are. They're back in the temple again. And they're brought before these religious leaders, and there's this reminder, didn't we charge you not to speak in the name of Jesus? Didn't we tell you to keep quiet about all this Jesus stuff? And then they say this, and it's, it's a testimony to the message of the gospel. They say, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. 
Understand, by Acts chapter 5, we know that the first part of the commission, the Great Commission, has already been carried out. Through the infilling of the Holy Spirit, through the boldness, through uh, their obedience, the apostles have already brought the gospel to all of Jerusalem. And the religious leaders are troubled, again, because their, their threats won't silence the message, prison sentence won't silence the message, and so they begin to entertain thoughts about putting these men to death. We're going to have to take them out. Now remember Gamaliel, he's a teacher of the law. He speaks up in the midst of the council and he says, take care, brothers, what you're about to do. In other words, slow down. Let's not go there just yet. And so they realize it's, it's probably best that we don't kill the apostles. Instead, we're going to beat them and, and once again, we're going to charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Here is another attack of the enemy, but the result of the attack is not what Satan expected. Because we're told that the apostles leave the presence of the council after being beaten and they are rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Picture this, they're walking out of the presence of this council, their, blacks, their backs are bloody, their, their chest is bloody, but their heads are lifted to heaven and they are rejoicing. And then Luke tells us there in Acts 5.42, this is another one of his summary statements, he says this, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So we see all of these attempts by the enemy to destroy the church, and yet because of their obedience, Jesus continues to do what he promised to do. He continues to build the church. The enemy is, is trying to subtract, but God keeps on adding, and he keeps on even multiplying, right? And so when we come to chapter 6, we're told that the disciples are increasing in number, and now the enemy employs another tactic. The Bible says we are not ignorant of his devices, right? The enemy will always use the same tactics over and over again. And it's at this point that the enemy attacks the church by attempting to divide it. Understand our God is a God of addition and multiplication. He, he, he's always adding or multiplying supernaturally things in our life. Sometimes he's a God of subtraction, right? Divine subtraction. He will remove things from your life at times that he knows that are not good for you. But the one thing that God will not stand for in his church is division. Understand, whenever there is a church that is complaining and backbiting and quarreling where you see one group pitted against another, it's at that point that the message gets so watered down that it becomes ineffective. The world can't see the message of the gospel or hear the message of the gospel through all the noise of division. And so, once again, the church needs to be purified. It needs to be cleansed. And we're going to see how God does that here in chapter six. The problem of division that we're gonna see here in Acts chapter six is addressed by organization in the church. This issue, we're gonna see how it is solved by the Holy Spirit leading the leaders of the church to say, you know what, we need a different kind of format here. Now, when you use that word organization, it's interesting because some people think of the word organization as a bad word, okay? There are those who say, I love Jesus, but I, I don't go to church. I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. That's like saying, I love you, Jesus, but I don't like your bride. I can't stand your bride, right? I want a personal relationship with Jesus, but I don't want organized religion. There are many today that are suspicious of organized religion. But what is the alternative to organized religion? It's disorganized religion, right? And I mean, who really wants that? Well, there are some that do. There are some that think if you organize anything, then automatically, if you organize what the Holy Spirit is doing, immediately you're sapping the life of that, out of that thing. 
And so there are those who say, you know, we're not going to plan, we're not going to organize, we're not going to do any of that. We're just going to come together and see what the Holy Spirit does. Can I just say there are times and places for that? There are times and places to just come together and pray and, and see what God does. However, as you read the pages of Scripture, you will see that God is a very organized God. We understand this, that in the church, things should be done decently and in order, right? And we know this, that as a larger church, that the larger the church becomes, the more organization is necessary. Now, when you think about the church, you need to think of it in two ways. If you're following along in the note sheet, write this down. The church is both an organism and an organization. It's an organism and it's an organization, okay? Okay. Uh, now, what do I mean by that? Well, we, we know this, that an organism is something that is living and active. It, it, it's, it's alive. And we know that a healthy organism is continually growing and moving and expanding. And so when, when we think about the church, understand it's not all about numbers. We, we can't just look at a church and say, that's a big church, it must be healthy, right? But we can say this, that healthy things do grow, right? Healthy things do grow. Uh, I remember back when my kids were little, and I have to go ways back, but I remember those early appointments, right, when you take them as, a, as an infant to the doctors, and they're constantly weighing them and measuring them and weighing them and measuring them, right? And I'm like, why is this doctor so obsessed with how much my kid weighs, right? They're charting it out. You're in the 50th percentile, 75th percentile, right? Uh, but, but here's what we know. Doctors know this, that, that if something doesn't grow, we have to look at what's wrong, Right? There must be something wrong. I'm always amazed by the growth that we see here in our church, but at the same time, we shouldn't be because if we're healthy, we will grow, and it is God who brings the increase, amen? But as we grow, if we don't organize the organism, we're going to have problems, okay? It's going to lead to some chaos. When we think of organisms, cancer itself is an organism, right? But the problem is that organism is out of control. The organism of the church needs to be organized, and again, the larger the organism gets, the more organization we need. Now, when we look at the world around us today, we observe an, an orderly and organized universe. And at the same time, on the other side, I know this, that you can organize things too much, right? You can get so obsessed over organization that you neglect the organism, right? You can be so concerned that everything's perfect in the house that nobody can live in the house, right? Because it's got to be just perfect. You can get to the point where you, you say, even in the church, you can say, okay, Holy Spirit, we're going to create this structure, and we're just going to ask you to bless it, right? It's, it's like telling the Holy Spirit, we already know where we're going. Now, Holy Spirit, just follow our lead, right? Obviously, that's wrong, right? Obviously, that's backwards. We, as a church here at Grace Point, we want to be a spirit-led church. But we understand this, that the spirit doesn't only give us understanding in the moment. Sometimes the spirit can lead us in the way that we organize, okay? And that's what's happening here in chapter 6 for the early church. Now, when you think, though, of organizations, understand this. The only time you need to radically change an organization is if there is a need or a demand that the organizational structure cannot currently meet. And so what is the problem for the early church? It's really a growth problem, okay? Things are, are growing rapidly, and there's growing pains, right? There's, there's challenges. I've spoken to different pastors through the years, and at times when we're growing and we're going through different seasons as a church, I've said, man, here's what we're going through and share some of those, the struggles, the, the problems. And some of them said to me, well, that's, that's a good problem. I wish I had that problem, Pastor. I wish we had the problem of growth. And yes, it's, it's a good problem, but it's a problem nonetheless, right? When an organization needs to begin to change and adapt to support the growth. Now, according to verse 1, the number of the disciples is multiplying. 
And a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Now, again, the church started with 120 in an upper room, and things were very simple at the start. It was much more like we're going to gather together and we're just going to see what God does. We're going to pray and we're going to wait on God. But problems arose with growth, and those problems need to be addressed. And part of the problem you, you see when a church becomes large is this. The, the Number one there, it, it, there's this. There is a perceived lack of concern. Because the church has gotten so big, there is a perceived lack of concern. I hear it all the time. Uh, you know, the ch- church is so big. How could you care about anyone personally? People automatically think that large means you're unable to be personal. And yet I know so many people who walk through the doors of this church and have just felt embraced by many of you, right? They just felt at home because they've been embraced by the people of God. But we know this as a leadership, we're conscious of this. As we get larger, we need to get smaller. That's really the heart behind our community groups, right? And honestly, I think there is plenty of opportunity to be known here at Grace Point. There's plenty of opportunity to get into relationships with others and do life with others. The question really is, do you want to be known? Oftentimes I'm out in the community and I'm check at the checkout line and somebody will say, hey, pastor, and you guys got it easy because you don't even have to know my name. You're just like, hey, pastor, and I'm like, hey, brother, <laughs> right? And it's gotten harder with a mask. I'm like, who are you? I don't know you. I'll say, oh, you go to Grace Point. Oh, yeah, I go to Grace Point. That's, that's, that's my church. I've been going there like four or five years, and I'm thinking to myself, how do I not know this person? And then we continue to talk, and they'll say, well, yeah, I usually sit in the back, and I kind of slip out. I, don't go every week. It's, it's my church when I, when I go to church, right? And, 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 you know, sometimes I'm watching online and here and there, but I really believe this today. If you want to be known here, there's plenty of opportunity to be known. It's one of the reasons we encourage you to get in a community group. It's one of the reasons we encourage you to get on a, a serve team here in a church. Begin to serve somewhere, okay? Yes, there's needs that need to be met. We need people serving in different ways to facilitate everything that happens here on the weekends and throughout the week. But I also know this, as you begin to serve with others in the church, you open your life to them and you can be known. But there's this problem in the early church and there is at least this perceived lack of concern. Secondly, there is an expectation that the leaders are going to personally fix all the problems. Pastor, here's the issue and and you need to fix it, right? Now, What's interesting to me is is what we see here is the disciples don't ignore the problem, okay? But they're not the ones who ultimately are directly involved with solving the problem. Again, the church started with 120, and I'm sure as things grew, there were issues that arose. There were things that were complained about. And when issues arise, you can begin to murmur and complain because with growth comes change. People can begin to say, oh, pastor, it's not like it used to be. I, I remember when. I remember when I used to walk in and find my seat right away, but now somebody's sitting in my seat, Pastor. Every week, somebody different is sitting in my, that's my seat, right? Or I remember the old sanctuary. It was much more intimate, Pastor. Now, what are we, in a gym? I mean, we've got basketball hoops in this place. What's going on, right? I'm pretty sure of this, that there were a number of complaints that were going around in the early church, but Luke wants to draw our attention to one. It is this complaint by the Hellenists against the Hebrews. It's an internal conflict that begins to take place. Stories come up of one group of women against another group of women. The problem is in the women's ministry. I'm not saying anything by that. I'm just drawing your attention. The problem appears to be in the women's ministry, and I'm about to get myself in trouble before Mother's Day, so let's move on. 
regardless, we know this, it's one group against another, right? Verse 2 lets us know that the 12 apostles summoned the disciples. I want you to underline, if you have your Bibles there, or even if you have a, a digital Bible in front of you, underline, highlight that word disciple. Disciple. Now, why is that word important here? Because this is the first time that that word is used in the book of Acts. It's used 28 times in the book of Acts, but this is the first time. The same word is used hundreds of times in the Gospels. But the structure in the early church, it was pretty simple. There were 12 apostles and everybody else was a disciple. Right? That's it. 12 apostles and, a disi- and the disciples. Right? But that's as complicated as the structure got. Now, that word disciple means this. It means learner or student. Learner or student. The, the apostles are, are sent out ones or, or sent ones and then the disciples are learners and students. But This complaint comes up by the Hellenists against the Hebrews that their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, you could ask, well, what is that? What's the daily distribution? Well, we know this about the early, uh, the the Jewish world at that time. They they took very seriously the care of orphans and, and widows. You see, when a woman in that society lost her husband, if she did not have some other family to support her and take care of her, she would be left destitute. And so, in the temple there were those who were in charge of collecting funds. They would have a benevolence offering, okay? They would collect these funds and they would distribute them to the widows that would certainly be in need. And it seems like the early church picks up on the same idea. Again, the early church did not see themselves as departing from Judaism. If you were to ask one of the apostles, if you go to Peter and say, Peter, why did you leave Judaism? He would look at you like you're crazy, right? Because they did not see themselves as separating from Judaism. No, they saw themselves fulfilled in their Judaism as they trusted Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. But there is this concern by one group that another group is getting preferential treatment. The Hellenists have a complaint against the Hebrews. Now, Who are these two groups? Well, the Hebrews were local Jewish men and women. These were those that were raised in Israel. They were raised in Israel. Primarily, they spoke Aramaic. When they read the scripture, when they read the Old Testament, they would read it in Hebrew. Now, some of the temple worship was in Hebrew, but daily they spoke Aramaic. This was the language of Jesus, again, because he was a a Hebrew, okay? And so the Hebrews held to the original Hebrew text. But then you have the Hellenists. These uh, were the Jews that were raised outside of Israel, okay? Because of the diaspora, that simply means the dispersion, right? When the Jews were dispersed, uh, these were the Jews that had been scattered into areas outside of Israel. And some of them would have come to Jerusalem for the feast. We saw that again on the day of Pentecost, Others would have come home eventually to Jerusalem. They, they moved back into Jerusalem and after growing up outside of Israel. And so when they returned to Jerusalem, they would gather with others that were similar, similar culture. And the language they spoke was Greek, okay? So while they're both Jews, they're, they're both Jewish, understand this, the Hellenists had their synagogues and the Hebrews had their synagogues. It's interesting because there's nothing in the Old Testament that speaks to this idea of the synagogue, right? If you read through the Old Testament, it's all about the tabernacle and it's all about the temple, but the synagogue really came about as a result of the diaspora, okay? And now synagogues are everywhere in Rockland County, right? We see them all around us. That's where that came from. These Hellenists didn't read from the Hebrew Old Testament. They read from a Greek translation of the Hebrew text. It was known as the Septuagint, okay? So now you have these two groups, and they're, they're coming together. Again, 
They're both Jews, but now they've placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and so they're coming together, and you can almost imagine, man, there's going to be some conflict, right? There are going to be some issues that come to the surface, because as beautiful as diversity is, diversity comes with challenges, right? Now, what was challenging here in the early church is that the Hebrews, or again, the local Jews, felt like they were superior to the Hellenists. They almost saw the Hellenists as, as worldly Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, right? And so they're coming together from different synagogues into one fellowship, and if you think that this is a struggle, just wait until the Gentiles show up, right? Just wait until the Italians get involved, and then, oh boy, right? It gets really interesting. That's when we start to talk about things like circumcision and uncircumcision, right, and, and what counts for what. But, but they're one church, and in the church there is this perceived lack of concern on the part of one group for their widows, and there is this expectation that the apostles need to fix this. And so the apostles summon the multitude of the disciples, and they say this, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. It's not right that we should give up teaching scripture and the apostles' doctrine to serve tables. Now, this could have meant literal tables, like serving food on a table, but I think more likely It refers to the kind of table that Jesus turned over in the temple. It was a temple where money was gathered, but also, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, a table where money was gathered, but also distributed from. Again, this money is being collected in order to respond to the needs of the widows. And there's no denying that tables needed to be served. There's no denial here that there's a need. They acknowledge this. Yes, we have a problem, but they also say this, we're not going to be the ones to fix it. So so what's the solution? We see it there in verse 3. Verse 3. It says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, we don't know for sure if the Hellenist widows were really being neglected. Was this really something that the apostles needed to be concerned with, or was it more of a a perception? Was was this perception that that the Hebrew-speaking Jewish widows were getting preferential treatment? Now, let's just say uh, this was more than perception. This was a real problem. If this was a problem, understand the problem was only made worse by complaining about the problem. I mean, you know, sometimes there's a problem and we make it worse by complaining about the problem because you can have a legitimate problem and the leaders may even understand and say, yes, we know we've got a problem, but what happens then? Because not every problem can be fixed overnight, right? And so sometimes we speak up and we say, well, the problem's still happening. It's not fixed, right? And out of frustration, we start to talk about the problem with other people. You can begin to spread a a bad seed. And and people that never maybe had an issue or were aware of that issue now get dragged into the middle of that issue, right? Can I just say this? Complaining is contagious. It's contagious. My wife and I, when we used to lead teams on the mission field, our our number one rule was no complaining. No complaining. If you got a problem, if, there, if there's a need, bring it to us. We want to address it. But, but don't just start complaining because all of a sudden everyone gets sucked into it, right? God hates it when we spread that bad seed. Proverbs chapter 6 tells us there are six things that God hates and seven that are an abomination to him. Some good bedtime reading. If you're not familiar with that passage, read it, right? Spend a little time in that passage. Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 16, it says, There are six things that the Lord hates seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, 
a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and look at this last one, and the one who sows discord among the brothers. Again, it's very likely that there was a a real problem, but the problem was made worse by grumbling and complaining, by murmuring. I love that word murmur. It's an onomatopoeia, right? In other words, it sounds like the action. Try this with me, murmur. Murmur, murmur, come on, come on, join. Murmur, 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 come on. Murmur, 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 right? What does that sound like? It sounds like complaining, right? It sounds like spreading a bad seed. And so the solution is seek out seven men to a point. The apostles say, you guys go and you find them and we're gonna confirm them and they're gonna fix this. But we will give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. It's amazing because you, you can see growth in the disciples right here in the book of Acts. Not only are they boldly proclaiming the truth of the gospel, but they're not afraid to handle some difficult issues when they arise. If you remember back in the gospels, there was a crowd that was gathered together one day to hear Jesus teach, and as he's teaching, the crowd only continues to grow, and, and the hour was getting late, and so the disciples say, you know what, we've got a problem here because they're going to get hungry really soon, Jesus. And so you need to send them away into the towns. There's 5,000 people here. They're getting hungry. And here's the solution, Jesus. Send them away. And Jesus says, no, you know, I don't think we're going to do that. I think, I think we'll feed them. There's a story in, in the Gospels of a Canaanite woman whose daughter was demon-possessed. And what is the solution from the disciples? Send her away. This girl's crazy. Get her out of here, right? And, and I'm so glad that when the complaint arose in the early church, the disciples didn't say, you know, who's complaining? Get him out of here. You're complaining? Get out of here, right? It, it makes you think, what has changed in the minds of the disciples? I think the problem for the disciples in the gospel was they saw themselves as manufacturers rather than distributors. The crowd is hungry. Right away they think there is no way that we can come up with this much food and so the solution is to send them away. But what they didn't understand in that moment is they didn't even have to create the food. They just had to distribute what Jesus gave them to distribute, what what Jesus manufactured, right? But now they have a different understanding that they're called to serve what Jesus gives them. I'm so thankful that as your pastor here, I don't need to manufacture anything. I don't need to come up with some crazy ideas. I just need to come to the word of God and present it before you on a weekly basis, right? I just need to serve up what God has already provided through his word, amen? Early on, the disciples thought that they were responsible for creating, but now they understand they're just to distribute what God has given to them. I hope you understand it's the same in your life today, that you are to be a conduit of the blessings of God. You don't manufacture those blessings. God is the source of those blessings. You're just called to distribute what God has given to you. You don't need to to create a new gospel. You don't need to come up with a gospel that's more entertaining. Okay, please don't do that, right? You just need to communicate the gospel that God has given to you. And so the apostles say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to continue to give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. We're not going to leave the word. We're not going to leave the teachings that Jesus gave to us. Can I just be honest with you today? I think the problem with the church, and when I say church, I mean big C church, I think the problem we're seeing in the global church today is that too many churches are leaving the word of God to serve tables. And and hear me today, I'm not denying that there are needs in this world. I'm just saying that we should never neglect this for that. 
There are too many churches today that are moving away from really teaching the Word of God. They say, you know what? People don't really care what the Greek says. They don't want to know about the context and the syntax and all that stuff. They're not interested in that kind of stuff. And so too many sermons from too many pulpits have become more of a pep talk to make you feel good about your life rather than an explanation and a, and a study and an unfolding of God's Word. This is His revelation to us. This is His revelation to us. Too many churches have said, let's change and start preaching a social gospel. Let's start tickling people's ears instead of challenging the heart with the word of God so that their lives would actually change. But I love it because the apostles here, they knew what their priority was. They also knew this, though. They knew they couldn't do it all. And so notice they said, we're not going to leave what we know we're called to do to do that. Listen, as needs arise in our community, we want to prayerfully respond to those needs as a church. I, I do believe God's put us here to be salt and light. But I want you to know this, we're never going to, we're never going to respond to the needs around us to the neglect of this. First and foremost, we're called to give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's our primary calling as a church. Uh, and, and here's the thing, it's not just churches that are leaving the word. Too many pastors are leaving the word. Why? Because honestly, it's not easy to study. It's not easy to, to like really study and teach. It takes work. It, it takes real devotion. It takes dedication. Listen, I, I believe this is what God has called me to do with my life, to communicate purpose through the word of God. But if I'm honest with you, there are some weeks I don't want to put in the work. <laughs> some weeks I just don't want to do it. But God continues to challenge me. I need to be devoted to this word. And, and I would ask this as your pastor, that you would pray for me, that you pray for the pastoral staff to that end. That, that God would give us a greater heart for it. That he would give us a, a greater understanding of his word. And if you're here this morning and you, you feel a call, a, a tugging to, to the pastorate, can I just say this? It takes work. <laughs> If you feel a call to vocational ministry, know this, it takes work. Preaching, teaching ought to take time. It takes time to dig into the text. It takes time to say, God, what are you saying? What's the context? What's the message? What are you speaking to your church right now? And I ask sometimes, why don't more pastors clearly preach from the word of God? I think sometimes it's laziness, but I think also sometimes we get distracted. We get distracted. In the ministry, there's so many things that can distract us from prayer and a focus on God's word. And some of them are good things, really good things. There's a lot of things I give my attention to during the week, but God is really challenging me this week that this is the most important thing. That there are two things that, that a pastor can never neglect. It's the word of God and prayer. The apostle Paul says to a young pastor, a man by the name of Timothy, he says, preach the word, Timothy. Preach the word. He says, be ready in season and out of season. You see, the apostles' uh, priority was the word of God and prayer. And so knowing this, they say, you guys begin to do a search. You seek out seven men. Why seven? Well, seven is the number of completion, but I don't think that's the reason why here. I think really the early church modeled itself after Judaism. And again, in Judaism, it was often seven elders who were appointed in a town to make decisions and judgments. And so they're following that same pattern here, and they say, select seven men from among you. Don't go looking outside. Again, don't go to Indeed and find the perfect resume. Look for people who are already in your midst, people that you know, people that you've seen their character. And, and here's what they say. Make sure, first of all, number one, that they have a good reputation. 
In other words, these have to be people that you know. These have to be people you've studied their lives and you say, you know what, that's a person of good reputation. And the next qualification, they say, is this, that they're full of the Holy Spirit. Listen, you can have a, a great resume in the kingdom of God, but if you don't have the Holy Spirit, it's all for nothing, right? If you don't have the Spirit of God at work in your life. They, they say, find seven men who are controlled with and are filled with the Holy Spirit. So many people ask me, uh, here's the big question, Pastor, can a, can a Christian be possessed? Can a Christian be possessed? And I would say absolutely. In fact, I believe every individual is possessed or controlled by some spirit. The question is, are you possessed by the right spirit? Right? Are, are you indwelled or controlled by the spirit of God, which is the Holy Spirit? And so make sure these men are full of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, thirdly, there it says, make sure they're full of wisdom. You, you know there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom? Like you can be smart, real smart, big IQ, and still not be wise. You can have all kinds of degrees and still not have wisdom. Wisdom is this. It is the proper application of knowledge. The proper application of knowledge. And so it's one thing to know all these things, but how do you apply them into your life, right? And so select the seven men who we will appoint to this duty. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. The whole church says, you know what? That sounds like a good idea. And so they choose these men. Stephen, a man full of faith, of the Holy Spirit. Listen, if, if there's a description that I would desire for my life, that's it, man. I, if I got that one, I'm good, right? Full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas. We're going to hear more about Stephen over these next few weeks. And then in chapter 8, we're going to hear about Philip. But the rest of these guys, we don't, we don't hear a whole lot more about. But here's what you need to understand. All seven men chosen have Greek names. Now, why is that important, right? The, the, their names are Greek. Well, again, who complained? The Hellenists complained. The Greeks complained. The Greeks complained. They say, you know what? The Greeks are complaining. Let's put the Greeks in charge, right? Like, you see the issue now. You guys step up and fix it. So often, God will highlight an issue for you because he wants to use you in the process of fixing it, right? Provided you're willing to be used by him and provided you're willing to do more than just complain. But they put them before the apostles, and the apostles prayed for them, and they laid their hands on them. The, the laying on of hands has this idea of spiritual impartation. We do that so often when we're commissioning someone to go to the mission field, or we're installing a new pastor or a new staff, right? We lay hands and we pray over them, and we believe that's biblical, okay? We believe there is a spiritual impartation, there's a, a blessing, that's what we're called to do. But why do the apostles do it here? Right? These guys, I mean, they're going to wait tables. They're going to distribute money. They, they just need to be good administratively. Like, are you a good accountant? How are you with numbers? All right, let me put you in, right? But, but that's not what they see here. They, they lay their hands on them because they recognize this, that there is a spiritual aspect to every service that we do for God. There is a spiritual aspect to every service that we do for God. I hope you recognize that today, that there is a spiritual aspect to any service you do for God. Whether you're standing at the door greeting people on the way in, or you're ushering, or you're running the sound, or the camp, whatever you're doing, there's a spiritual aspect to it, right? I mean, they could have gone out and found a good accountant to deal with the issue. But they said, you know what, the biggest qualification for these individuals as leaders is their character even more than their competency, because there had been a man who was in charge of the money who maybe had competency before, but he lacked character. We want to know this. They have a good reputation. We want to know they're full of the Holy Spirit and they're full of wisdom. 
In other words, we don't just need somebody who can get the job done. We want to make sure that, that they see this, what they're doing as ministry, right? And so as they're distributing the money to the widows and, and a widow comes in the place of need, they're ready to not just give them money but to, to lay hands on them and pray for them, right, to, to take care of them. And so they pray and they lay their hands on them and they anoint these men to take care of the ministry to the widows. Now, some say that these are the first deacons in the church. I guess you could say that, but it doesn't really get formalized until later. But even that word deacon in, in the Greek, it means this. It means to serve. It means to serve. Our deacons here at Graceborn are those who say, you know what, we're committed to serving so that the preaching and teaching of the gospel can be facilitated, so, so that this place can be a house of prayer, can be a place of prayer. But I hope today in whatever role you serve in at the church, you recognize there is a spiritual aspect to your service. And look what happens as a result of this new structure in the church. Look at verse 7. This is another one of those summary statements. It says this, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I want you to put a mark by that verse in your Bibles, because really, uh, verse 7 really ends one section of the book of Acts. Congratulations, guys, we've made it through the first section, right? And so this is really a summary statement by Luke about what has taken place so far. But this is an important moment in the book of Acts because it really marks the end of the witness of the gospel in Jerusalem. That's not to say that the gospel is no longer going to be declared in Jerusalem, but what you're going to see in the chapters ahead is that there's this shift that's going to take place now where the gospel will begin to go out to Judea and to Samaria and eventually to the whole world, right? We're going to read about the story of Stephen, who was the first martyr of the church, and then we're going to talk about Saul, who becomes Paul, the man who stood by and held the cloaks of those who were stoning Stephen, and from there we're going to see how Philip spreads the gospel to Gaza and to Caesarea, and then we're going to see Saul's amazing transformation where he gets radically saved, and he takes the gospel to the ends of the known world. But as we come to a close today... As we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper in just a few moments, I want you to look at verse 7 one more time. You got it in front of you? Make sure you look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Now, as you look at that verse, you have to ask this. How can the word of God increase? <laughs> right? I mean, how does, how does the word of God get greater? Does that mean there were more opportunities, there were more people to share the gospel, or does it mean something more? In the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, Jesus says that the seed that's sown in good soil resulted in an increase, right? 30, 60, and even a hundredfold. Since it is the seed of the word of God that is sown, the grain that is produced is what? It is the word of God. Now, why is that important? Because you need to understand this. When you share the word, and someone is receptive to the word, then they share that word with others. In the early church, the word increases and the disciples multiply, but it is not just the once-a-week church attender that sows the word. It is the disciple of Jesus Christ that sows the word. It's those who learn and understand the word that share the word. It's those whose lives and words then spread the seed of the word to others. And something amazing begins to take place. It says, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. I love that phrase, obedient to the faith. 
Too often we just say, accept Jesus, receive Jesus. But I gotta tell you, if you haven't, you haven't really received Jesus until you've become obedient to the faith, okay? You haven't really received Jesus until what you say you believe actually affects the way that you live. And I can only think, at this point, it must have been so encouraging for the disciples to see even the priest acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah. The church continues to grow because spiritual godly men stepped up and they they filled a need. They stepped into the gap and they served. And the apostles said, you know what? We're going to keep devoting ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The church continues to grow because they kept the main thing the main thing. They did not neglect prayer. They did not neglect the study of God's word. And so for each of us, we are the church. This building we're sitting in today is a great building, but this is not the church. We are the church, amen? We are the church, and so for each of us as a part of the body of Christ, we have to ask, how do we make our lives count for the kingdom? How are we assured that, that one day when we stand before God, that our works aren't going to go up in smoke because they were simply our works and they were not based on the leading of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I want to tell you, it's by this. It's by committing ourselves to prayer, each and every one of us, to prayer into the word of God. I know many of you would acknowledge today and say, Pastor, I know prayer is important. I, I know the word of God is important. And yet I know how easy it is for other things to come into our lives and distract us and take us away, right? And sometimes it's even the good things that distract us from what's most important. And so here's how I want to challenge you before we move to communion. Would you stand with me? Here's how I want to challenge all of us as the church. I want to challenge us to a greater commitment, a greater focus on prayer and on the word of God. So with heads bowed around this room, this is a time between you and the Lord. The Holy Spirit's challenging you. I want to ask, will you commit yourself to a consistent prayer life? Maybe it's not three hours to begin with, but it's consistent coming before the throne and, and asking God to work in you and through you? Will you commit yourself to being a student of the word of God? Again, maybe it's not two, three hours a day, but it's time consistently in the word where you ask the Holy Spirit to teach you and shape you and mark you by his word. Will you commit to being a servant of God, though, as needs arise in the body? I know every one of us here that claims to be a disciple longs to hear the words one day, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. And if that is the case, then we must commit ourselves to prayer. It's prayer that listens to God. It's prayer that surrenders to God. It's prayer that obeys God. You know, people often ask me about God's will. They say, Pastor, what's God's will for my life? Can I just say, I believe this is it. It is the blessed life. This is the life that God intended for you. This is the life that God desires for you to experience, and it is a joy-filled life. John said it this way, this is eternal life to know God and Jesus whom he sent into the world. And so I want you to take a moment before we receive the bread and the cup. The Holy Spirit leads, just make a new commitment in your life, a new commitment to prayer, a new commitment to the word of God. The early church grew because the apostles knew what was important. May we never neglect these priorities in our own lives, and may we never neglect them in his church. Amen.